Hello and welcome to the latest installment of our Borders Blatherings podcast, where Mary and I talk about the curious, shadowy, and often very magical history of the Scottish borderlands. Mary, how are you today? I'm very well today, enjoying the spring sunshine. How are you, Doug? I, I'm pretty good. Still suffering a bit from a cold, but the sun is shining and the world, although nothing is good at the moment, uh, no. outside no. this window, things are not too bad. Yeah. Last week, we, when we were speaking, we did a podcast. We had a good old blather about pilgrimage, mm-hmm. the origins, mm-hmm. and then we touched on some of the important sites of pilgrimage here in the Scottish borders. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you gave us a lot of information about Our Lady's Well that is just a few miles from here and so on. And during that conversation, I made what at the time was a throwaway remark. With So a crusade <laughs> was basically a pilgrimage with weapons. Yes. And in our conversation, we decided it might be a good idea to, to, to follow that Mm-hmm. Installment on pilgrimage yeah. by talking about the Crusades, Absolutely, so that we could yeah. look yeah. at that in more detail, look at borders, connections, and perhaps just the legacy of the Crusades. It's a very wide-ranging topic. I imagine. <laughs> it's a big topic, and I'm going to depend <laughs> on you a lot. Do you mind if I start with a linguistic view? All right. On okay. This? Now I know we're a history podcast, uh-huh. but sometimes the use of language is something which which can irk me and and, and confuse me. Let me set the scene by saying, at the end of the fairly recent COP26 conference, when it seemed like there were some compromises reached in order to get agreement, particularly with the Indian and Chinese delegates Mm -hmm. on, on emission control and so on, and moving away from fossil fuels, I heard Loose Lips Boris Johnson say something along the lines of, as a native English speaker, I can assure the the world that there is almost no difference between phasing down and phasing out. Now, I was tempted to scream at the radio at that point (laughs) because I had spent a few hours earlier that day working with two financial managers at Volkswagen in Germany. And I had prepared material which I called down and out. And we were looking at phrasal verbs, idiomatic phrasal verbs. So put down. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, have your dog put down painlessly. Uh, Make fun of, to put someone down. To mark me down in a a questionnaire. Put me down as I don't know, Mm. etc. And then to hear Boris talk about there being no difference, I thought, why are you making my job even more challenging <laughs> as and the students than, than it is? And this raises my point. Mm-hmm. Doing a bit of source analysis yesterday, I looked at written and oral contributions from people like Eisenhower, George Bush, Tony Blair, and I'm not putting any particular political bent on this. Mm-hmm. And although... The preposition, what I call prepositional shift, although we campaign for something, campaign for nuclear disarmament, Mm -hmm. campaign for enhanced uh, working conditions, Mm -hmm. and we stand up for good old Bob Marley, stand up for our rights, Mm -hmm. we stand up for freedom. Interestingly, in all of the speeches I looked at, we were on a crusade against, crusade against AIDS, 
crusade against terrorism, crusade against the enemy. Mm -hmm. Now, this suggests to me that while standing up for and campaigning for suggests good, benefit, and a positive outcome, a crusade against suggests simplistically good versus evil. Yes, you're, you're instantly saying that we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and we're going to crusade against the bad guys. Yeah. But can we put our hand on our hearts and say that the crusades were just simplistically Christians against Muslims and good versus evil? It surely cannot be as simple as that. <sighs> it's difficult because that's how it was sold to the people who went on crusade. They were told they were the good guys going to crusade against the bad guys. And so when the Pope pitches up in France in 1096 and says, you know, um, the Emperor in Constantinople says that the nasty infidels won't allow Christian pilgrims into Jerusalem. Mm. Can we please send some soldiers over there to help? Jerusalem's the key here at this point, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what it's sold as. Yeah. So... We spoke the last time about the fact that good Christians had to do their pilgrimage at least once in their lives. So what you're saying to... Now, we, we, we're in a society where you roughly have your peasants who till the land, your knights who charge about keeping you safe, and your holy men who pray for your soul. So if you are a knight, it is your job to fight for the good. And if the Pope pitches up and says, mm. the Muslims, the infidels, the horrible people out there will not allow us to go to the holy sites in the holy land we need to give them a slap. And if you do this, this will count as your pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. This yeah. will count yeah. as your penance. And even if you do have to kill someone, although obviously it's against God's law to kill somebody, you will be forgiven because you're killing the bad guys for the greater good. So it is sold as we're good, they're bad. And we're killing in the name of God. We're killing in the name of God. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a whole heap of politics and religion in the background to this. And one thing we have to try and get our heads around the fact is that politics and religion tend to be separate, certainly in Britain and in, in most European countries. Not so much a thousand years ago. They were very intertwined. Yeah. So we have to be careful when we're looking at what's going on. Um, but the politics and the religion is, we're going to sort out the Holy Land. And... If you go off as a knight, then you are able to do so and you're going to, you know, you're going to do your penance. All your sins are going to be forgiven you. You've got the Holy Land back. And even if you die in battle, you're dying a Christian death. Mm. You're a Christian martyr. Yeah. So you're so guaranteed. So they given martyrdom as well, yes. And that's what's happened. And now the thing is that the Holy Land, we've talked about this before, you've got three big monotheistic faiths all based in the one place. So that's not a good start. By the time the Pope comes up, by the time um, Pope Urban pitches up and does his big speech in, in 1096, the Seljuk Turks are sort of in charge of Jerusalem, if you like. They, they're, they're ruling that area. That area is under Muslim control. Yeah, Seljuk now, land, yeah. yeah. Christians are allowed to go there. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. You can go on your pilgrimage, you can get on your boat in Venice, or you go to Constantinople and come down, but you have to pay a little bit of money. Yeah. yeah. And in all these things, the amount of money you had to pay is going up a little bit, and the amount of access to the holy sites is being restricted a little bit more, and the pilgrims are getting pushed and shoved about a bit. 
And so there are fewer pilgrims managing to get there. They end up, a lot of them end up in Constantinople and can't go any further. They get a bit stuck there. So that's why the emperor in Constantinople turns to the Pope and says, can you help out here? Because it's Western pilgrims that are pitching up in his city and milling about. And there's, you know, there's just a bit of antagonism and it's just starting to lift. And initially the idea was that there would be a, a sort of force of crusader knights who would go to the Holy Land, Mm -hmm. there'd be a couple of small battles and they would take the Holy Land back for Christendom. And they start off in the first battle you get is the siege of Nicaea. And they win, unfortunately, because once they've won that, they think, right, fine, we're taking the whole of the Holy Land back. And it just becomes this four-year slaughter in the Holy Land between... Orthodox Christians, uh, Roman Catholic Christians, Muslims of various different caliphates, um, and the Jewish population and the local population, the Coptic Christian population, mm-hmm. they're, they're under utter terror um, whilst there is four years of pitched battles during that time. Um, and the death rate is ridiculously high. Yeah. The death rate amongst Crusader Knights is sitting at about 35%. Yeah, that interesting you say Nicaea, because that is modern-day Iznik. Mm. It's about 55, 60 miles south of Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And during my four and a half, five years in Turkey, although I had three very much down in the south near the Syrian border, I was two years on and off in Istanbul. And I used to visit Iznik, or formerly Nicaea. Mm-hmm. And I picked up on a lot of the importance of that particular battle yeah. uh, during these visits. It's a lovely little place now. Yeah. Uh, One of the problems was the fact that they won it relatively quickly, Quickly, relatively easily, which proves that they were doing the right thing and it proves that God was on their side. Uh Um, Had they lost that battle, who knows if the Crusades... Because the Crusades continued for literally hundreds of years. There were up to eight Crusades, depending on how you count them. So if they had lost that first battle, who knows? They might It might have been a very different outcome. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the rationale behind the Crusades, uh, part of my naivety here, but is it... Yes, Cassie. Is it basically to put the, the brakes on the advance of Islam further and further west? Partly, that's, really what it is, that's what it is for the emperor and the patriarch in Constantinople. So that's what it is for the Orthodox Christians. Yeah. For the Orthodox mm-hmm. Christians, it's we need to put a stop to this and we need help to stop the advance of Islam. For the Catholic Christians, it's we're taking back Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. We're taking back the Holy Land for us. And also politically to turn to the Orthodox Christians and say, we're better than you because we saved the Holy Land for God. Yeah. You lot didn't. Because the problem was that the, the so the, the Roman Empire splits in two. The Western Empire dissolves away, falls away, and the structures are filled by the Roman Catholic Church, if you like. The eastern half of the Roman Empire didn't fall away, and it was living alongside the Orthodox Church. <coughs> yeah. And they were geographically next to all of the Islam Islamic caliphates that were coming up. And, you know, it's all very well to say, well, you should fight them, but you've got to trade with people. You know, you've got to exist with people. You can't be in a constant state of war. So what had happened was they had sort of reached an accommodation with the different Islamic rulers that there had been. 
So Western Europe's saying, oh, that's terrible, you should be fighting these terrible infidels and you should just shove them out of the Holy Land. Whereas the Orthodox Church is saying, we've got to live next to them, they're our neighbours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's only when things start to build to a head, because there's a lot of politicking going on within the Islamic caliphates, and so they're starting to think, well, who can we push, who can we shove at? We're not going to shove the Jews because they're nice and passive and they pay their taxes, so we quite like them. And we're not really going to shove at the Orthodox Christians because we trade with them. No, we'll shove at those Western pilgrims that keep pitching up and annoying us. That's who we're going to pick on. So Mm. all of these things come together and that forms the crusade. And so for every individual that was involved in the crusade, yes, it was religious, but there was a political element there as well. But the political elements were different for the different individuals. And that's why it becomes quite a complex and complicated little sort of nexus of, yeah. of of power and politics and religion and fighting. Yeah, I would argue, maybe in my na- historical naivety, that the, the, the Roman Empire doesn't really end in the East until about 1453. Absolutely, with yes. With the fall of, yes, of, of yes, Constantinople. Yes. It lasts for another thousand years in yes, the East yes, after it's fallen in the yes. West. Although here yeah. in Scotland we go, why, you know, these Romans never came north. You know, it's too cold, mm, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well. <laughs> but it does go on for a long, long time. Yeah. So the, the, there is trade yes. very much that is yeah. central um, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. that. There's a, a, a mutual understanding. Yes, yeah. Pilgrims can still access... Jerusalem, yeah. Antioch, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. other all places. these places, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, does it matter how many <laughs> crusades there actually were? I think in high school, I would have been taught about four as being the There's key the f- crusades. Yeah, the first four are the ones that most people tend to talk about because the fourth crusade was a disgrace. Even at the time, it was noted as a disgrace. There were several crusades, so there were about four or five crusades after the fourth crusade, but if we stick to those first four, because they're the first four, and I would say the fourth crusade, the first and the fourth are important because they're the ones that have had a lasting legacy. Uh Um, And they are the ones that have, I would say, caused such... um, how, How can we put this? Lack of respect between East and West... Um, a lasting, lingering suspicion of each other, a distrust of each other, because of what happened in those first four, and especially in the fourth, in the fourth crusade. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the thing with the crusades is everybody thinks, oh, it's all very jolly, and you see the knights, and off they go with their horse and diddly dum, and they go to the the Holy Land and they fight a battle and they get Jerusalem back for Christendom, although they never do. But it wasn't; they weren't just the ones who went. So if you're the local knight here in the borders. And you've heard the call and your mother's telling you to go and your sister's telling you to go and your wife's telling you to go. Just like in the First World War, if you didn't go, you'd get a white feather sort of type thing. So you've got to go. But you can't just go on your own. You need somebody with you. So you need some poor peasant lad who's only about 14 or 15. You tell him he's now a squire. And he's sitting in the back of a donkey with all your kit. Because it's expensive to go in the... You have to have a horse. You have to have your shield. You have to have your sword. You have to have your dagger. You have to have your armour. It's expensive. So you and, you know, Jimmy from Selkirk are now going all the way to the whole land. Jimmy from Selkirk maybe doesn't want to go, but he's got no choice in the matter. Yeah, yeah. And you're dragged all the way across Europe where you're meeting up with other crusader knights and it's all very glamorous and all very exciting for the knights. The squires are running about seeing to the horses and washing this and washing that and getting the dinner on and these sorts of things. 
You go all the way to the Holy Land. You're now somewhere very different. You don't know where you are. The weather's different. The climate's different. The food's different. There are weird people about. There are battles going on. What happens if your knight gets killed in the first battle? What do you do then? You're stuck in a land with no master, no income and no way of knowing what you're doing. You could be stuck out there for four years. You could come back with a present for your mother, like leprosy. Yeah. You know, um, typhus, dysentery, typhoid, yeah. you name it, it and was no happening. No English breakfast or wanting his red barrel beer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so going on crusade was glamorous and romantic if you were a knight, not if you were a, not if you were a camp follower. Absolutely not. It was hard work and potentially extremely dangerous. You're probably going to die of a disease if you're lucky, or if you're very unlucky, you could get captured by some sort of Islamic force somewhere along the line and sold into slavery, especially if you're blonde and blue-eyed. Blonde, blue-eyed slaves fetched a high price in the markets of North Africa. They, they play the old job evaluation trick on you, which is you're no longer a, an odd job man. You, you're a unique task coordinator. Yep. You become a squire. Yep. Uh, and off you go on this off great adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. your knight is killed. And that's it, you're left, because nobody else is going to take you on. There's a reasonable chance that your knight might well be fighting alongside French knights or German knights. They don't speak your language. Why should they take care of you? You're really not sure what you're doing. And even if you survive, it's horrific. If your knight is in battle and is successful and comes back of an evening, not only have you got to make sure that his dinner's there and his flag and a wine's there, You then have to take off his soiled armour, which is covered in blood and entrails and bits of human flesh. You've got to clean that to make sure that's ready. You know, this isn't a nice thing. You're seeing slaughter. There's no way these, these young men came back without some form of PTSD, although obviously it wouldn't have been recognised then. You cannot go and witness slaughter. This isn't battles as battles are carried out today. This is hand-to-hand combat of somebody literally sticking a huge sword through somebody's guts. And and it it was horrific. There There are chronicles talking about women being told not to go out because the streets were slippery with blood and entrails. It was horrific. It was slaughter. It wasn't battle, it was slaughter. Uh And that's the thing. It was done in the name of Christ. What he thought of it, I don't know. But it was absolute slaughter. And everybody involved would have been affected. Your description is bringing back so many memories to me of slaughter in the name of God, Allah. While living in southern Turkey, in the the days and weeks leading up to Kurban Bayram, one would come across sheep. Everybody had a sheep or two in their garden. And on my way home from whatever <laughs> work I was doing, I would, going back to my apartment or the guest house, that I, the government guest house I lived in, I would go, ah, hi, Neil, hi, Brian. I would have names for all these sheep uh-huh. and have a wee chat with them. In in the knowledge that when Kurban, sac- uh, Kurban is sacrificed in Turkish, mm-hmm. when the day came, at a defined moment in time, Mm-hmm. I would hear this noise of yeah. the the throats being cut, yep. and the streets would would yep. wherever I was uh-huh. in the Arvakar or Mush or Bingo, yeah. they would run with blood. Yeah, and this was in the name of Allah. Yeah, uh-huh. now, I mean your average farmland <coughs> from Selkirk 
is used to seeing life and death. Probably slept in yeah. the same bed as his granddad who may have died yeah. beside him. Yeah. Or he sees his father slaughter a sheep or slaughter cattle. Mm-hmm. But there's a world of difference between knowing that a sheep is going to be slaughtered and you're then going to eat the meat to watching another 14-year-old yeah. Islamic yeah. boy yeah. having his head sliced off with a sword. Yes. This is horrific yes. slaughter. This yeah. is, And yet it is done in God's name. Yeah. And there are hundreds, and I mean hundreds of priests there telling you that you are doing God's work the whole time. And they are constantly telling <coughs> you how who you are fighting. The infidel were ungodly and they were apostates and they were heretics. Yes. You know, you're yeah. getting all of that yeah. propaganda is being fed to you the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could still remember being taught this hymn at high school. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Yes. There's the propaganda. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, later on it gets known in later centuries as muscular Christianity, which I think is a horrific phrase. But it is, it's that thing where you are slaughtering. And it's really odd. I I am not Christian myself, but I look at the Old Testament, which is a hoot and a half of a read, and it's all about God (laughs) smiting this one and God smiting that one, and there are battles going. You want to read about battles, read the Old Testament. You then come into the New Testament where you have Christ who is preaching love and tolerance mm-hmm. and, and you know, bring the little children and he hangs about with prostitutes and he says like a good guy, you know, he likes a glass of wine. Um, and yet it's in his name that you are literally slaughtering yeah. other people. Yeah. And as I say, that's just in the first three of the crusades before we get to the fourth crusade, which is the one that, that, really is is just a step too far. It's the disgrace. So the Fourth Crusade is in 1202. And the idea is that yet again we're going to, you know, so we can tell you, we started off in 1096, we're at 1202, we still haven't got the Holy Land, but we're going to go back yet again and get the Holy Land. (coughs) And for a variety of reasons, the Crusader Knights go to Constantinople as they normally should. They went to Constantinople and then they would go down to the Holy Land. They go to Constantinople and an argument starts in Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Now, the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church had sort of fallen out years previously um, over theology, as all religions do. Fair enough. And it had been a case of, we're right, you're wrong, but on you go. And that was that. This argument over theology raises its head again and the folk in Constantinople and the emperor there and the, the, the patriarch and the Orthodox Church are starting to say, we're not quite sure if we want you here anymore because you keep pitching up every so often. You go down to the Holy Land, you cause chaos, you slaughter people, you upset our friends and then you go away again and we've got to pick up the pieces. Yeah, yeah. But this is not on. And this argument gets more and more intense until eventually the Crusaders sack Constantinople and they slaughter most of the people in Constantinople. Mm. They're slaughtering fellow Christians. They don't there are a few Muslims are killed, there are mm. a few Jews who are killed who are there, but the Roman Catholic Crusader Knights turn on the Orthodox Christians yeah. and they slaughter them. And there is no excuse for that. They cannot get past that. The patriarch and the pope just look at it. I mean, 
And there's no way the Pope can justify this. He just cannot justify this. But that's what they do. And then once they've slaughtered everybody, they steal anything that isn't nailed down. Yeah, yeah. They strip the city. And there are churches to this day in Western Europe that have golden chalices and, and yes, various things yes. that have come from Constantinople. Yeah. And that was when after that, every other crusade after that barely touched Constantinople. The crusaders would go through, and some of them did go through Constantinople, but the people in Constantinople just said, we, we never want to see you again. Yeah. Go away. This is, this, this is not crusade. This is not God's work anymore. This is just slaughter. Yeah. This is just slaughter. And the crusaders who came back from the fourth crusade had a bit of a hard time when they came back because news travels. And people were looking at them saying, yeah. why, why were you slaughtering other fellow Christians? And they tried to spin it. They tried to say that, oh, but they're Orthodox Christians. And well, you know, they've got some funny cost, customs and, and well, yeah. they're almost sort of infidels. It's 13th century collateral damage argument. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it wasn't as if, it wasn't as if there was a battle between the Christians and the Muslims mm. and the Orthodox Christians, Christians were just a side event. They actually went after the Orthodox Christians. They, they made no mis- they made no uh, sort of mistake about it. They were absolutely targeting the Orthodox Christians and just stripped the city. You know, I mean, <coughs> at the same time as this was happening, well, if you think about it, a couple of hundred years previously to that, the Vikings had come down, mm-hmm. terrorised the living bejesus out of everybody. <laughs> but they weren't Christian. They were pagan. Yeah. They believed in the Norse gods. And this had been something that the church had railed against yeah. because after the, the Vikings had come down, the Pope spent his entire time sending missionaries up to Scandinavia to try to sort of sort these people out yeah. because it was awful what they'd done. The slaughter they'd done was awful. The pillaging they'd done was awful. And yet here were these Christian crusader knights under the auspices of the Pope being told by Pope Innocent III to go to Constantinople and to to slaughter people. Yeah. And so you cannot get past that fourth crusade. And as I say, there were several crusades thereafter, but they were very much just in the shadow of the fourth crusade. Um, and I don't think Constant- Constantinople looked at Western Europe and thought, no, no, we, we, we don't want that. And there was, there was a real breach there for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and there is still a breach between, if you look at some of the, um, Christian churches today, you will get, the Archbishop of Canterbury sitting down with the Pope to have a conversation. You will get the Anglican churches and the Catholic Church and the different Protestant churches speaking to each other. The Catholic <coughs> Church and the Orthodox Church seldom talk to each other indeed, to this indeed. day. Yeah. To this yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. One of the fascinating things about living in Istanbul what was this this very clear divide over the Bosphorus between the, the Asian and the European sides. Mm. Life was different. People were different. People thought differently. And uh, much of the, the, the storytelling about those times in the people's history in, in Turkey has come from, you know, my, the, the time that I... I spent there. Can we move on to 1453? And I mentioned this because... <laughs> When I lived and worked in Turkey, many of the people that I worked with would not tire of telling me that in, in Western Europe, 13 was an unlucky number because of 1453. If we add up the digits, they come to 13. Yeah. I never once believed that. <laughs> <coughs> in my various visits over to Alexandropolis and parts of Greece on the Midnight Express, I did pick up that 13 was a 
an unlucky number for many Greeks, as, Greeks, mm. as was the day Tuesday, because mm. uh, Hagia Sophia yeah. fell mm, <laughs> on a Greek, Tuesday yeah. on the 13th yeah. in, in 1453 yeah. under uh, oh, Mehmet II. Yeah. Mehmet II. Um, but I never bought into the 1453 adds up to 13th. No, I'm unlucky. not sure about that one myself. <laughs> uh, it might be a more uh, Judas Iscariot thing. It might I, be. I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't, know. Might, I don't yeah. know. Many of these uh, phrase and word origins are, are not reliable. Yeah. My... yeah. But but that area around Constantinople taught me so much, just talking to, to local people and historians about the impact the Crusades actually had. Mm-hmm. We've also touched on the impact here in, in, in the Scottish borders by the promotion of we Johnny who works on a, as a farm labourer becoming a squire to, to some bigwig, some important person. Um, you mentioned at the end there that the Fourth Crusade was nothing to be proud of, was just no, bloody, it really wasn't. bloody slaughter. Any chance we could end <laughs> on, on, on some benefit? I started this podcast talking about, you know, Campaign for, stand up for, but crusade against, you know, good <laughs> and evil. You had a book published recently called An Elephant Crossed the Valley. I did indeed, yes. I have skimmed that rather than read it from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Would I be right in thinking there might be a wee story you can tell to finish? Does that have crusader <laughs> connections we can we the can, elephant we can indeed we can indeed good Cassie prick up your ears it's Mary's story time Cassie story. we're going back to the first crusade Aha. now Malcolm III of Scotland yeah. had four sons all of whom hated each other and spent their whole time politicking against each other <laughs> Canmore the big head I indeed indeed <laughs> so in 1095 his fourth son who was called Edgar decided that he would claim the throne, even though his big brother, Dougal, was king. Now, Scotland at that time had various kings and various small kingdoms, Mm. but we're going to talk about Scotland roughly in the main. There is a problem through in the West, and we'll get back to that. So anyway, Edgar's charging about lowland Scotland, saying that he's king of Scotland, and Dougal's more or less up in the highlands saying he's king of Scotland, and the two of them are sort of yelling at each other, but they haven't got to a pitched battle. So then finally Dougal dies and Edgar is now King of Scotland. And, of course, the King of England is William the Conqueror mm-hmm. at this time. And William the Conqueror has got his own problems with various Scandinavian kings coming over, so there's all sorts of chaos going on down in England. Pope pitches up and says, I want a crusade to go to the Holy Land. And Edgar thinks, I could do that. Yes, oh, a chance. Because it's my normal pilgrimage. And it will show everybody in Scotland how good I am and how I'm going on a pilgrimage and I'm going to go on a crusade pilgrimage. So I'm fighting for God and I'll fight for the people of Scotland. That will unite it. And it will basically be one in the eye for that silly English King William because he's not going. Ha, ha, ha. Uh So Edgar prepares to leave. But as I say, Edgar has a wee problem. And the problem is Glasgow. Now, <laughs> you do surprise isn't me. Isn't it always? We, we always cause bother wherever we go. The last king of Strathclyde, Owen, had only recently died, and there was no king in Strathclyde at that time. So all the Glaswegians are busy fighting each other like there's no tomorrow. 
And Edgar wants to go on the crusade, but he thinks, if I leave, those Glaswegians are just going to kick off. (laughs) So he speaks to his cousin, who's a high king of Ireland, who has a great big long Gaelic name that I can't pronounce. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being honest here, I can't pronounce it. It is something like Mucherata Uabrian. So we're going with Uabrian, because I can manage the end bit of the name, okay? So Edgar says to Uabrian, I'm going to go and crusade. I'm going to be fantastic. I'm going to get the Holy Land back for God. Can you keep an eye on those Glaswegians for me? Yeah. And Uabrian went, oh, I suppose. Yeah, okay. If I have to. <laughs> if I have to. But, you know, he's going on a crusade for God. So Edgar, off he goes all the way, and he fights in the first crusade. Mm. And he's quite successful. And then he decides after a couple of years to come back. And he thinks, oh, well, oh, I'd better, I'd better bring Uabrian a present or something. I'd give him something. I could give him a sword. I quite like my sword, don't I give my sword? I know, I'll get an elephant. Oh, brilliant. So what he gets an imaginative a... present. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a war elephant. Now, mm-hmm. he could, if he wanted, get himself and his elephant onto a ship, go all the way through the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. go through the Straits of Gibraltar, go all the way up and land at Dublin yeah. by ship oh, and really? say, yeah. ta-da, yeah. here's your elephant. What Uabrian thought of getting an elephant, we've no idea. But he doesn't do that, Edgar. He decides to show off and he walks no. the elephant from the Middle East all the way to Cali. So he is showing the whole of Western Europe just how fantastic a king he is because he's got an elephant and he's coming back from the Crusades. So wow. God has blessed him as a king. He gets to Cali, and again, he could have got on a ship at Cali and taken the ship all the way around to Dublin, but oh no, he is no. going to show off to William of England. You didn't go on crusade. You haven't got an elephant. I did. God loves me. I've got an elephant. And he walks that elephant <laughs> from Dover all the way up, presumably along the length of what is now the A1, I'm not quite sure, mm-hmm. right the way through the Scottish borders. He makes sure that everybody has a chance to see it. I don't know how fast an elephant walks, but he doesn't walk it fast so everybody can come out. You can't miss an elephant walking through the Scottish borders. Gets up to <laughs> Edinburgh. No, everybody can. in Edinburgh comes out and yeah. oozing as yeah. over it because it's, you know, one of the big main cities. He then goes across to Glasgow, at what point all the Glaswegians I have no idea what they said under their breath at the sight of this elephant. Then the poor creature gets put on a ship and is taken across to Dublin. But that was a massive political act. And there are two or three chronicles that talk about the Scotch king and his great beast. And he walked that elephant through. And of course, because it was a war elephant, it was trained. So it walked all the way through. And that is, as far as I'm aware the earliest sighting of an elephant in the Scottish borders wow. in 1097, although I am quite happy to be proved wrong. Yeah. That is, Mary, that is exuberant virtue signalling <laughs> long before <laughs> the days of social media. That Absolutely. is class. <laughs> that is it, yep. <laughs> so no longer do I have, I have images of Errol Flynn getting on board the, the, the Black Pearl ship. With a leopard on one leg and, nah. and, and a yeah. tiger on nah, another. Nah, 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 nah. 
Small potatoes. Small potatoes. <laughs> King Edgar and an elephant. And an elephant. That is classic. <laughs> oh, Mary, thank you very much. I wanted to, to, to try in and get in, um, I think my favorite building in the world I've visited, and that is Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Mm, oh, yeah, it's glorious. Which glorious. has been a Christian church, a mosque. When I lived in Turkey, a museum. Mm-hmm. And I believe uh, Bashbakan Erdogan has converted it back to a mosque, but I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure. Yeah, I think it yeah. is a mosque now, symbolically, mm-hmm. anyway. And I have to say that is arguably the most impressive building in my life, in terms of my first, I've been there many times now, but the first time I set foot inside Anna yes. Sophia, yes. I was overwhelmed and stunned. I have to agree with you. Because Absolutely. as a building, it seemed to conjure up through the murals, through the, a lot of the imagery, this battle that raged throughout Absolutely. the Crusades. Yeah, yeah. Christian and Muslim influence it is an absolutely wonderful building and for an apologies to anyone listening in america um in stark contrast to the first time i stood in front of the white house because i was completely underwhelmed by that oh dear <laughs> having lived on the imagery through photographs and so oh, right. on before i actually went there but no disrespect <laughs> mary thank you very much i think there is much that we could have come back to but i think we've dealt with the rationale and the legacy of 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 the crusades in pretty good detail there so Thanks again for your input and for that lovely story. That was a wonderful ending. Indeed. If, if nothing else, we have elephants in the borders. Elephants in the borders. Who'd have thunk? It did. <laughs>